Hey, Proof listeners, it's Julia Collin-Davison. I'm the host of America's Test Kitchen and Cook's Country, the two most watched cooking shows on TV. Now, I've been teaching people how to cook on TV for over 20 years. And one of the big reasons why I love my job is because our content is the best, hands down. Everything we do, recipes, product reviews, taste tests, it's all about rigor. So I feel confident when I show someone how to roast a chicken or bake a pie that they're getting the most thoroughly tested recipe out there. And that just feels good. If you love listening to Proof, please consider supporting our work by subscribing to an ATK digital membership. You'll get access to our archive of great recipes, recommendations on the best kitchen gear for your money, and so much more. We'd love to give you a 14-day test run, so just go to atkpodcast.com and sign up for your free trial. Thanks and happy cooking. Even in Japan, most people have never seen the inside of a sake brewery. While a few breweries do offer tours, many don't. And only the workers who make the sake really see the whole process. So the brewing of sake can seem mysterious and almost magical. Hannah Kirshner is an American journalist who's been working in Japan for six years, writing about food and craft. When we heard that Hannah spends her winters helping out at a small sake brewery, we asked if she could take our listeners inside. Not only do we get to peek at how sake is made, she brings us an underdog story about the head brewer and owner, Fumiaki Matsuda. The brewery is in Yamanaka Onsen, a small hot spring town in Ishikawa Prefecture. It's up in the mountains near the Sea of Japan. Hannah literally wrote a book on the town of Yamanaka. It's called Water, Wood, and Wild Things. Her experience at the Sanke Brewery started as research for a chapter in that book. In 14 generations, the brewery had never employed a foreigner or a woman. So Hannah says it took some convincing and a lot of patience, before they agreed to let her work there. But I guess she proved herself, because even after the book was published, they invited her back to continue working with them. And now, she works there part-time every winter, which gives her a unique window into that world. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, Hannah brings us a story from inside Matsuura Shuzo, the brewery where they make a brand of sake called Shishi no Sato. I'm Kevin Pang. Stick around. Hey, Proof listeners, it's Kevin Pang. What's a good way to elevate your desserts when you're baking at home? I'm here with Laman Johnson, a test cook here at America's Test Kitchen, and he's going to let me in on the secret. Hey, Kevin. Choosing the right kind of butter can be a game changer. Even when you're making something simple but delicious like our easy blueberry cobbler, you want the end result to be luxurious. So I like using a European-style butter like Plugra because it uses cream from American dairy farms and has the right amount of butter fat. That helps create a smooth and buttery moist cake crumb. Oh man, I can already imagine what that cobbler is going to smell like coming out of the oven. Taste the difference with Plugra Premium Butter's 82% butterfat content. Visit Plugra.com for more information.
It's January as I'm recording inside the brewery. The weather's cold and wet, and there's snow on the mountaintops. Sake needs to be made at cold temperatures so it can ferment slowly. So this is traditionally winter work. January and February is the busiest time of year for small sake breweries like this. So Matsura-san and the five of us who work here are constantly in motion. We're hauling rice, stirring tanks of fermenting sake, putting labels on bottles. Fumiaki Matsuda is the 14th generation in his family to run this sake brewery. To me, he's Matsura-san, which is like calling him Mr. Matsuda. And when we're at work, he's just shacho, meaning boss. You might have heard people call sake rice wine, but sake isn't really wine. Technically, wine is alcohol fermented from fruit. Sake is actually more like beer in that it's made from grain mashed with water and yeast. But really, sake is in a category of its own. When it comes to wine, making it can be as simple as crushing grapes and letting them sit. The wild yeast on the grape skin will convert the fruit sugar into alcohol. But when you're making alcohol from grain, like beer or sake, it's a little more complicated. You have to convert the starch in the grains into sugar. Beer brewers do that by letting barley start to germinate. As a seed gets ready to feed a sprout, it naturally produces sugar. Here's why sake is in its own category. Sake relies on a special mold called koji. Koji is also shorthand for rice with koji cultured on it. Under a microscope, each grain of koji rice looks like a tiny planet with a fuzzy forest growing out of it. Enzymes from the koji convert rice starch into sugar. Then yeast can turn that sugar into alcohol. Matsura-san likes to say that koji makes rice into fruit. Transforming rice into sake is both physically and mentally demanding. Every single step has to be done with care, or else someone could get hurt or accidentally ruin the sake. But Matsura-san is our fearless leader, and everyone here trusts him completely. Outside the brewery, Matsura-san is a bit shy. He's incredibly humble, but his sake has a dedicated following. He makes seven styles of sake under the brand Shishi no Sato, a name that refers to local folklore. Fans of this sake include a prolific television and film actress and a famous kabuki actor, and professionals who write about and sell sake describe Shishi no Sato like this. If I could drink it every day, I probably would. The way I would physically describe that is like you're talking to somebody as you're drinking with him or her, and you're like, oh, yeah. And you taste the sake, you put the sake down, like three seconds later, like, wow, that's really good. <laughs> the owner of a local sake bar here in Yamanaka, Yusuke Shimoki, says, It's different than other fruity sakes. It goes well with sashimi and soy sauce, he says. And then... Yeah, I think that's... Uh, characteristic and intention that comes through across the whole lineup of sakes is this sort of purity and crispness and really focus. That last voice you heard was George Padilla. He runs a Japanese restaurant in Brooklyn called Rule of Thirds and the sake shop attached to it called Bin Bin Sake. George came here to Yamanaka last fall and something Matsura-san said stuck with him. You should make friends with your enemies. The way I interpret it was either appreciating or understanding and sort of accepting 
the challenges of things not going your way exactly how you plan or you want them to go. But that's part of the process. Clearly, people love Shishino Sato, and I think it's really special. But it's been a long and hard road for Matsuro-san to get here. As Matsuro-san puts it, at the beginning of his career, he went through hell. There was a time when he could barely sell his sake, much less make something that would be loved around the world. That's the story I'm going to share. The brewery is this big two-story warehouse. In the morning, when the rice is steaming, these huge plumes of steam rise up towards the rafters, with beams of sun shooting through and reflecting off the wet floor. And the whole place smells like steamed rice. Near the entrance, there's a photo from 1995, when Matsuro-san was 26. He had just come home to work in the family brewery. In the photo, there are eight men, wearing white rubber boots and white caps. They're gathered around the big orange tubs used to soak rice, holding various tools for making sake. The photo was published in a magazine at the time. The article was about Matsuro-san and his friend and rival, Akitsuna Takagi. It used to be that the owner of a sake brewery would run the business and he would hire a toji, a brewer, to oversee making the sake. The business side of things and the brewing were separate. But these two sons of brewery owners, Matsura and Takagi, were going to be both owner and toji. It was big news at the time. Matsura-san says, Every liquor store, the entire alcohol industry in Japan, was watching us. Matsura-san actually didn't want to take over the brewery at first. He wanted to be a diplomat and travel all over the world not work in this little old mountain town surrounded by forests. Back then, sake had a reputation as an old man's drink. Matsuro-san and his friends would rather drink beer or wine. Talking about the family business, he says, at first I thought it was a really uncool job, a really tough job. But still... He didn't want to see the family business come to an end. What finally made him decide to go back was meeting Takagi. They were both working at a nice liquor store in the Tokyo suburbs to learn about sales and distribution. Meeting someone around his age helped Matsura-san make the decision to return home. Takagi would be the 15th generation to take over his family brewery, and Matsura would be the 14th generation to take over his family brewery. But first, he had to prepare. Matsuro-san went and studied for six months at the Sake Brewing Institute in Hiroshima. That's where he learned the basics of brewing. He learned how to analyze sake in a lab to monitor fermentation, and he learned how to culture yeast. After studying at the Brewing Institute, Matsuro spent a month working at a brewery called Tokun in Chiba and a week at Takagi's Brewery in Yamagata Prefecture, where they make a sake called Juyondai. Matsura and Takagi egged each other on. One of the things that differentiates their breweries is the kind of water they have access to. Water is really important to making sake, partly because of the sheer volume used every day to wash and steam rice, to clean tools, and to brew the sake and adjust the alcohol content. But also 
The minerals in the water affect the yeasts and enzymes that are part of fermentation, and that affects the aroma and flavor compounds they produce. Takagi's brewery has hard water, which is ideal for making the kind of sake that was becoming popular right around that time. Something really aromatic that you would want to just sip on its own. Matsura's brewery, on the other hand, has soft water, which is good for making the kind of subtle sake that pairs really well with food. So Takagi encouraged him to lean into that. And Matsura-san is a bit of a gourmand, so he loved the idea. Matsura-san says Takagi wanted to take the world by storm with a sake that didn't need food. And I swore I'd take the world by storm with a sake that draws out the flavors of food. So Matsura-san began working in the family brewery with that in mind. And at first, he worked alongside the toji, the head brewer, who his family had hired for years. Matsura-san was still learning the craft of making sake, and he wanted to support the toji however he could. So he set to work cleaning the brewery. It's a 100-year-old building, and there was a lot of clutter. Matsura-san says he wiped everything with bleach. The ceiling, the walls, the pillars, the floor. But something started to go terribly wrong. The sake suddenly had this strange, unpleasant smell. He says it smelled kind of like the rind of camembert cheese. Like the taste when that powdery white mold touches your tongue. That's not what sake is supposed to taste like. There's even a word for when sake tastes like this, but it's so stigmatized in the sake industry that Matsura-san didn't want me to even say it. He says, just as I was making my debut, this strange smell appeared. Right when I was in the spotlight, this weakness came out, and it was a severe, devastating blow. Orders from retailers disappeared almost completely. We really had to start from zero. If they didn't fix the problem, the family business could go bankrupt. And they still had to sell the sake they were making. It was safe to drink, it just didn't taste right. So Matsura-san tried various things to mask the smell. They used charcoal filtration and really fragrant forms of yeast. But they were still losing customers. Matsura-san kept cleaning, hoping that would get rid of the smell. He called in experts, scientists and toji from other breweries, and they looked at every part of the brewing process. There are so many steps involved in making sake. Could the problem be contamination in the machine that rinses dust and bran off the rice and shoots out the washed rice into meshed bags? Or the big orange tubs of water they're lowered into to briefly soak the rice? Could it be the big steam tub the rice is emptied into the next morning to cook? Could something be affecting the cooked rice? The experts checked, and Matsura-san cleaned and cleaned. If it wasn't any of those steps, could it be happening during koji making? Remember, that's the good mold cultured on rice, and the key to converting rice starch into sugar. 
Making koji is perhaps the most sensitive of all the sake-making processes. It's done in a special room, called the muro. Brewery workers aren't even allowed to eat certain fermented foods. No kimchi, no natto, no shiokara. Because those foods all have really strong microbes that could potentially interfere with the koji. Making a batch of koji takes about three days. Warm rice is spread out on a big table in the muro and sprinkled with koji spores. They fall in these gray-green puffs, almost like upside-down smoke. In Matsura-san's early days back at the brewery, he and the toji, the head brewer, would sometimes have to get up in the night every three hours to tend the koji. They were meticulous. To make sure there was no contamination, Matsura-san cleaned every surface in the muro with bleach. By the third day of koji making, it grows into a fragrant white mat. It smells sweet and kind of mushroomy and fruity at the same time. To make the main fermentation mash, the moromi, koji is mixed with steamed rice, yeast, and water. The moromi is made in big tanks and looks kind of like porridge. You have to climb up a ladder and stand on a platform to stir it with a big, long pole. As the moromi ferments, the koji is turning rice starch into sugar, and the yeast is turning that sugar into alcohol. It becomes this thick, milky-white mixture. You can actually hear it bubbling. When the alcohol content gets high enough, that milky mash is pressed, and clear sake pours out. It has a hint of the golden color of a rice field in autumn. It's an exciting moment, but for Matsura-san, it was tainted by that mysterious smell. The moldy smell was already present in the moromi, so its source must be somewhere before that point. But no matter how closely they looked at each step of the process, no one could figure it out. A year passed, and then another, the experts just kept telling Matsura-san to clean more, clean better. So that's what he did. He says, I thought there was a fungus involved that was playing a prank on me. So I used more and more disinfectant to sterilize. Somewhere around four years into this struggle, Matsura-san heard about another sake brewery nearby that had a similar problem that moldy smell in their sake. When that other sake brewery built a new muro, the room for making koji, the smell miraculously went away. Perhaps the weird smell had something to do with the muro, but no one could pinpoint what caused it. One of the scientists who tried to help Matsura-san was Hiroshi Iwata. He had been one of Matsura-san's teachers at the Brewing Institute in Hiroshima. My work is giving some advice to sake maker. Professor Iwata's job is to give advice to sake makers and to taste and assess their products. He had seen this moldy-tasting sake before. There was a brewery he had tried to help, but he was transferred to a different position before he could solve their problem. Later, he heard that that toji, the head brewer, had to resign because they couldn't get rid of the smell. Professor Iwata says, the toji bears ultimate responsibility for the sake. So if the sake isn't good, they have to quit. I was so frustrated that I hadn't been able to resolve that problem. 
He says that stayed with him. The Toji at Matsura Sons Brewery eventually resigned too. Seven years into the struggle, Matsura Sons took over. He says, We were losing customers rapidly and it became hard to run the business. We were no longer able to employ a Toji and ended up starting from scratch with just three local people. After the break, was this the fresh start Matsuura needed or the beginning of the end? Did you know you can help develop recipes for America's Test Kitchen? It's true. We have nearly 45,000 home testers who try out and give us feedback on new ATK recipes before they're published. Want to be part of the ATK family? Go to americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing. Once again, that's americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing to sign up. And now, back to our story. While Matsura-san's friend, Takagi, was rising to fame and Ju Yondai was becoming so popular that shops couldn't keep bottles in stock, Matsura continued to struggle, year after year. But there was one ray of light. Around the second year of his struggle, Matsura-san had stumbled upon something interesting. Remember, he had to make the sake palatable enough to sell, so he tried all sorts of things. And one that kind of worked was filtering the finished sake with charcoal. That took out the unpleasant aroma, but it also took away a lot of the good flavors. That's when he had an idea. He says, I started in bottle secondary fermentation to try to bring back the fresh flavors and aromas. What he did was add yeast when he bottled the sake so that it would ferment again. He was just hoping to add flavor. But the sake became fizzy. As far as Matsura-san knew, there were only two sparkling sakes on the market. One was a very thick nigori sake that was like drinking moromi straight from the tank. The other, he believes, was carbonated with injected CO2, kind of like when you make seltzer with a soda stream. What he had just made was different, more like champagne. Not quite as bubbly as champagne, but fresh and naturally effervescent. He thought maybe if he focused his efforts on making something new, he could still succeed, or at least survive. It was around that time when Matsura-san talked to the head chef of the Hotel Okura. The Okura is a famous hotel in Tokyo that has hosted royalty, including Princess Diana and world leaders like President Obama. The chef said whenever they held big banquets or weddings, they would have a champagne toast. According to Matsura-san, the chef said champagne was actually too acidic to complement Japanese food. The chef wondered if there was any way sake could be made into a sparkling drink, something you could toast with on a special occasion. Matsura-san realized he was really onto something. So he kept working on his effervescent sake. 
He got it more and more bubbly, but not so bubbly that the bottle would explode. The last thing he needed was another scandal if a customer got hurt by broken glass or a shipment was ruined by leaking sake. So he proceeded slowly and carefully. He says, it was like carrying on a dialogue with the sake, with the yeast, to create an environment where the yeast could stay alive and get closer to a sparkling sake. What he created was gently sweet and had lots of fine bubbles that would fizz up when you opened the cap. It had a texture like champagne, but the flavor of sake. Matsura's sparkling sake contained sediment from the live yeast that made it a little cloudy. So he tried removing the sediment, like you do with champagne, to make it clear. But he didn't really like the result. He says, when I did that, it was no longer sake. The flavor became extremely thin. Matsura-san happened to talk to an immunologist who was a guest at a nearby ryokan, a fancy Japanese inn. The immunologist, Dr. Masashi Saito, said that ingesting live yeast could boost the immune system. He said the gentle cloudiness of Matsura-san's sparkling sake was a good thing, healthy even. So Matsura-san felt confident in his decision to keep it that way. The Hotel Okura chef gave this new sake the name Sen, meaning fresh and vivid. And then later, you've probably heard of Iron Chef. Well, the original Iron Chef, Rokusaburo Michiba, is from here, from Yamanaka. Chef Michiba gave Matsura-san another insight. He told him to look up why the written character for Sen is made up of parts meaning fish and sheep. Matsura-san says, I found out that long ago in Europe, fish and sheep were used as offerings to the gods, so both had to be very fresh and high quality. And this idea came from Europe across mainland China and became the written character Sen in Japan. Matsura-san liked the idea of something both Western and Asian. His new sparkling sake paired just as well with steak as sashimi. Matsura-san quietly developed and began to sell his sparkling sake. He was excited about his new creation. Something beautiful had come out of his hardship. But it wasn't enough to turn things around. From the day the moldy smell started, nine years passed without any solution. Matsura-san could disguise the smell but not stop it completely. So he had to keep selling sake that he felt was subpar. But remember that scientist, Professor Iwata, who we heard from earlier? Professor Iwata had been troubled by his failure to solve this problem at another sake brewery, where the toji eventually quit. He had a suspicion that the moldy smell originated in the mudo, the koji room. But he hadn't been able to prove it. Until he transferred to a new role with access to better equipment. In the early 2000s, Professor Iwata became head of the Analysis and Evaluation Laboratory within the government agency that regulates sake production. Before that, when looking at the components of sake, he could only analyze parts per million. But now he had a lab with a mass spectrometer that could analyze parts per trillion. The way Matsura-san tells it, his problem was now technically outside Iwata's purview. So Professor Iwata came to Yamanaka under the guise of a family vacation. 
When he arrived at the brewery, he took samples of the wood from the table they made koji on. When he took the samples back to his lab, he figured out the problem. He found a lot of this compound called TCA, trichloroanisole. Matsuda-san remembers getting a call from Professor Iwata while he was in the middle of brewing. Professor Iwata asked, are you using bleach in the Muro? Matsuda-san said he was. Professor Iwata told him to stop right away. The bleach was reacting with the plywood table to create a compound that's toxic to koji. To protect itself, the koji mold, the good mold, converts that compound into TCA. Once it's in the moromi, the mash, TCA makes sake taste moldy. And it only takes a tiny, tiny, tiny bit, parts per trillion. Matsura-san remembers being shocked. I couldn't believe bleach was the problem, he said. I could barely stay standing. Now that he understood the problem was plywood reacting with bleach, Matsura-san took action right away. He covered the koji-making table in thick vinyl so that none of the koji rice would directly touch the table. And then, he and his team started making koji for a batch of daiginjo. That's the most refined and expensive kind of sake. It's made with rice that's had more than 50% of the grain polished away, so just the starchy core is left. Polishing away the outer part of the grain, where most of the fats and proteins are, makes really clean, light, aromatic sake. When spring came, Matsura-san sent that batch of daiginjo to the national competition that's held every year. And... It won gold. Matsura-san says, (laughs) It was like I had got back my 30s, which had been hell. This discovery was a little less dramatic for Professor Iwata. It turned out the same discovery had been made earlier in different industries. French winemakers had figured out in the 80s that bleaching their corks was giving wine moldy off flavors. And a Dutchman called Engel was actually the first to report that TCA causes a moldy smell in chicken eggs and chicken meat. And even in Japan, there had been a similar discovery by the giant whiskey maker Santori around 1994. If there had just been more communication between industries, sake brewers like Matsura wouldn't have had to suffer so much. Now that they knew, Matsura-san and Professor Iwata wanted to help others avoid the same mistakes. At first, other brewers were actually really skeptical of this news. They were so accustomed to using bleach for sterilization. But Matsura-san made a detailed presentation for the Brewing Society of Japan. Other brewers then took home this knowledge, and now it's standard practice to use hydrogen peroxide instead of bleach in the koji room. A different chemical is fine. It's specifically chlorine bleach that reacts with the wood and koji. Matsura-san made several changes to his muro. He replaced the wood table with stainless steel, and he painted the walls and ceiling to seal the wood, so it couldn't react with koji. And 
he changed his cleaning practices, of course. Finally, he could make the kind of sake he wanted to. A sake, he says, with a gentle, fresh aroma, like being surrounded by a calming forest. A sake to be drunk with meals that would draw out the flavors of food. Now, almost 20 years later, that's the kind of sake he's known for. Matsuro-san sells seven varieties and four seasonal releases. They all reflect that vision. But Sen, the sparkling sake, holds a special place in his heart because it's a beautiful thing that came out of his long struggle. One of the voices you heard praising Matsuro-san's sake at the beginning of this episode was John Gautner. He's the preeminent English language expert on sake. John has been writing and lecturing on sake since around the same time Matsuro-san was getting started making it. And John has been a fan of Shishino Sato sake since he first tasted it, over 20 years ago. Sen is one of his top two sparkling sakes. I like the, the mild honey-like sweetness with it as well. Uh, and also the bubbles are nice, right? They're, they're kind of gently tickling. I like the flavors. Uh, it's got some subtlety in it as well, um, which you don't find so often in, uh, in a lot of sparkling sake these days. I can barely get Matsuro-san to admit it, but his sparkling sake set off a trend. There are now dozens of sparkling sakes on the market. Some are still pumped with CO2, but a lot of them are naturally sparkling, like Sen. As 2020 approached, Matsuro-san had high hopes for the Tokyo Olympics. He imagined lots of people toasting with Sen, and he made extra. He even added English to the label. But then the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Once again... Matsuro-san faced plummeting sales. But he's no stranger to turning adversity into opportunity. Up until the pandemic, Matsuro-san had been reluctant to export his sake. He worried about having enough to serve the local community and his other loyal customers. And he didn't want to expand too fast. But he looked at the big walk-in refrigerator, full of bottles of sen, and he decided to take a chance. Well... Now you can get Sen and a few other kinds of Shishino Sato in California and New York. George Padilla, who sells sake in New York, told me his favorite pairings for Sen. This is what he recommends to customers at Bin Bin Sake in Brooklyn. Cheese is one of my favorite recommendations. There's the a little bit more like creamy body from the subtle amount of ori, the rice sediment that's left in it that carries like a little kiss of sweetness to it. My favorite pairing is one Matsuro-san's mom came up with, persimmon and camembert. I asked Shimoki-san, the sake bar owner here in Yamanaka, what he would pair with sen. Says it's perfect with grilled skewers of duck. The versatility of sen makes it a great food pairing sake. Shimoki even suggests having it with kiwi fruit. Simone Maynard, who has a podcast called Taste with the Toji, likes sen with strawberries and. I also tried it with a little bit of pizza, like cheese and mushroom pizza. Total umami bomb, but because there's an element of sweetness in the sen, it was just a really wonderful way of exploring the food and, and uh, sake pairing with that particular sake. And I think that the pizza worked really well. 
Compared to the amount of sake a big company can send, there is a very small amount of Shishino Sato coming into the U.S. But for Matsura-san's brewery, exporting has made a huge difference. Instead of cutting production because of pandemic losses, Matsura-san increased production this season. And I'm very happy to report that for the first time ever, there's hot water in the brewery now. So we don't have to wash our hands with cold water in the winter anymore. Matsura-san said that he wanted to make sake that's like a breath of fresh mountain air for city people. It's pretty amazing that now, after everything Matsura-san went through, that this taste of Yamanaka has made it all the way to the U.S. Matsura-san says his wish is for people to pair it with non-Japanese foods, too, for it to enhance those foods. And for the fine bubbles to provide a rhythm, an accent, to draw out the flavors, to be like the notes of a melody. Thanks to Hannah Kirshner for bringing us today's story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer Caroline Rickard. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex Curran Cardarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with sound design supervision by Matt Boynton. Scoring, mixing, and sound design by Anya Gzeshik. And additional engineering by Justin Garish. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music, additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis. Is our director of host production, and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Sarah D. Collins. Special thanks to Hiroshi Kumagai for in-person translation and to Arlene Lyons for remote translation and for her expertise in sake. Thanks also to Professor Hiroshi Iwata for explaining the science of this issue in detail. And a big thank you to Matsura-san and the whole crew at Shishi no Sato. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer and Dan Surratt is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, Eglin's Best, Plugra Premium Butter, and the Augusta Scoffier School of Culinary Arts. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. 